Welcome to the Simpkins Family Chronicles podcast. My name is Kimberly Simpkins, and this show is about my family's amazing journey of navigating mental illness and marriage and much more. Psalm 66:12 says, You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. My goal is to share our story of the many challenges our family has experienced while living in the shadow of my husband's bipolar 1 diagnosis, and how we were miraculously brought to a place of safety by Jesus' mighty hand. I hope to encourage those who are walking alongside a spouse or partner with mental illness while also growing in faith and devotion to the Lord. Even if you're not a person of faith, I think you will still be encouraged by our story, especially if you or a loved one struggle with mental illness. Special thank you to my husband, Scott, for his support and permission to share the story as well as allowing me to use one of his original compositions performed by yours truly on violin and a wonderful colleague on piano. into today's episode, I wanted to share some cool information with you. I've recently had the privilege of connecting with some amazing women who are in similar situations as me, being married to someone with bipolar disorder and other types of mental illness. There is a profound lack of resources and support for marriages where one partner has a serious mental illness, especially for those who desire to stay in their marriages and make their marriages work. These marriages are defying the negative statistics for marriages where one spouse has a mental illness. I wanted to bring your attention to a few places and I'll share links in the show notes. I've only discovered these resources recently, but wow, it would have been nice to have had something like this in the early days of our marriage. The first is Temple. She leads a group on Clubhouse called I Married Bipolar. Each week, she holds a gathering in a room on Clubhouse sharing topics related to mental illness, self-care, making relationships work, and all kinds of other situations and circumstances unique to these kinds of marriages. People share stories, encouragement, and provide a listening ear, and even some practical advice. You can find out more about her by going to her Instagram, imarriedbipolar, and follow the link. Also, I was a guest speaker on her show on February 9th, so you can check out the replay on that. Next is the Mental Health Marriage Podcast. This is a podcast by another fellow warrior wife, I guess I could call it that, that features interviews and stories with others who are making their relationships work in spite of a mental health challenge. Look for part one of my interview on episode 27 and stay tuned for part two. Lastly, there's the Mental Health Strong Group. This is a faith-based group with a broader focus on marriages dealing with any kind of mental health challenge, as well as addiction. There's a monthly support group that meets virtually, an online conference coming up in May. Also, I've begun volunteering with this group, and I look forward to being part of the leadership team in shaping the future of this organization. If you or someone you know is in this kind of relationship, or you have questions on how to support those in your life who are in these kinds of relationships, by all means, check out these resources and also the resource page on my blog, The Simpkins Family Chronicles. While it would have been wonderful to have had something like this early in our journey, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to share the lessons that I've learned along the way and to give others hope and let them know that they are not alone. 
Hello, and welcome back to the Simpkins Family Chronicles. Be sure and go back to listen to episodes one and two in order to start from the beginning of our journey. I hope you'll stay with me as our story progresses. The last episode, I left off with Jasmine and I going on a trip and coming home to Scott in the middle of the second manic episode of our marriage. This time, however, something was different. He was definitely more distressed than manic, and it was clear that something was wrong. We got home from our trip, and since it was late, we put Jasmine to bed. Then, Scott sat me down to tell me something. Apparently, while we were gone, Scott began having flashbacks. He shared with me images that had come to him from his childhood of severe traumas that he said happened to him at the hands of certain family members. While sharing this with me, it was clear that it had caused him great emotional distress. In fact, I had never seen him like that in six years of marriage up to that point. He was an absolute mess. So let me interject a disclaimer here. Due to the sensitive nature of the things that Scott told me on that fateful night, I won't be sharing publicly exactly what he said. In the very near future, however, I'll be offering subscription-based bonus content that will take a deeper dive into this very important part of our story. It will explore the role that severe childhood trauma can potentially play in mental illness. So if you really want to get down and dirty with the nitty-gritty details of our story, stay tuned for future announcements. But for now, suffice it to say that what Scott said happened to him was nothing short of horrific. On the one hand, it was so horrific it sounded outrageous and almost impossible. But on the other hand, it actually sounded quite plausible. There was a lot of drama in Scott's family. The summer before we got married, one of his siblings actually had a similar experience with having flashbacks to abuse. In fact, as I thought about it later, I realized something. The sibling was triggered by a two-year-old niece. Scott, at the time, had a two-year-old daughter. Although his memories were very different, I couldn't dismiss the fact that in each situation, a two-year-old child was the common denominator. Could there be something to that? In addition to that, in all honesty, what he told me, if it was indeed true, it explained some things about his family, especially his parents. So, let me tell you a little bit about the in-laws. The best word to describe Scott's parents would be eccentric. He did try to warn me before we got married that his family was a little different, but nothing he told me prepared me for what that actually meant. They claimed to be Christians, but his mom had a strong Christian science background, so she was really into natural health and alternative medicine. Some of their Christian beliefs were unusual. They didn't really attend church, but they had Bible studies in their home with a small group of friends. Scott's dad had even written a book. At the time, Bible codes and uncovering secret messages in the Bible was a big thing. Well, Scott's dad had his own theories on the Bible codes, and he wrote a book that uncovered the secrets of the Bible. But it was their worldview that was the most striking thing about Scott's parents. At this time in my young life, I had never heard of the New World Order or the Illuminati. All of that was about to change. That was Scott's parents' favorite subject. They loved to talk about how the world was not as it presented itself to be. They, however, knew the real truth. We never went to the moon. Nope, it was an elaborate hoax staged by the government. And the government was not really the government. There were these shadowy elites who were really running things. 
Look at the money. There's the all-seeing eye. It's really the Rothschilds and the Bilderbergers that run the country. Presidents are pawns. I learned about the Bohemian Grove and some secret party that took place in front of a statue of a big owl that these world elites supposedly worshipped that represented the god Moloch. They constantly listened to alternative radio stations. In fact, I think that might have been the first time I had ever heard of Alex Jones in Infowars. So you see where I'm going with that, right? In Scott's parents' minds, nothing is as it seems. The world is not a safe place, and only they know the truth of what's really going on. They were ready for doomsday. On their 15 acres of land, in a beautiful house that Scott's dad designed and built essentially by himself from the ground up, they would be able to sustain themselves in the event of martial law overtaking the land. There was a reason for things happening at certain times. Columbine, Waco, and the Oklahoma City bombing, it all happened around the same time in April on or near Hitler's birthday. And along with the money, the all-seeing eye was embedded in the symbols for CBS, Time Warner, and other com companies, along with all manner of occult symbols in our society. Mysterious people only referred to as they are really running the world, and we know the truth. Scott's parents did not really talk much about Jesus, but they did like to talk about their conspiracy theories, which I didn't even know if I knew that term at the time and their alternative health remedies were a big thing. Scott was still living there in the months after we came home off the road and before we got married. Because he had been all over the world and to some third world nations, Scott's mom insisted that he had parasites. She had a device called a zapper that if he was going to be under her roof, he was required to hook up in order to get rid of the parasites. As far as our upbringing was concerned, like me, Scott was the baby of the family with a significant age difference between us and our oldest siblings. But that's about where our similarities ended. Our families could not be any more different. Of course, there was the fact that he was a white guy raised in East Tennessee, and I was a black woman from North Carolina. My parents were divorced when I was young, and in fact, my father had passed away while we were on the tour. His parents had been married for decades, and they were still together. My family valued higher education, but Scott's family were more working class and neither he nor any of his siblings were really encouraged to pursue college, which I found kind of interesting. Scott's dad was highly intelligent and self-taught. He had designed that beautiful home that he had built himself brick by brick, teaching himself every aspect of building, architecture, wiring, and landscaping. All this while maintaining a job with the telephone company and raising four children. They were super frugal and believed in living debt-free. Scott's mom was a stay-at-home mom. My mom was a single mom who worked full-time and could barely make ends meet. It was a wonder I had the success that I had on the violin. My mother made great sacrifices just to get me one. I had to wear my big sister's hand-me-downs, but Scott's family, they went on vacations and had even gone to Disney World when he was little. To me, it seemed like Scott had it made in the shade in his childhood. They lived in the wealthiest area of town, and he had his own car when he was in high school. When he got sick, his parents seemed to seek out help, so they must have cared about him, and they had the resources to do so. And Scott had never heard of a ramen noodle until after we got married. So how bad could things be? And yet, Scott confided in me that his family was weird and that being the youngest, he felt neglected and overlooked in his household often. 
When he wasn't being ignored, he was the one that always got in trouble and got more whippings than any of his other siblings combined. Scotty, as his siblings called him, was a stinker. Scott's mental health issues had presented a challenge for his family, so I thought, hmm, maybe whatever Scott is feeling, it's coming from that. In private, he would express doubts to me as to whether his parents were really Christians. His entire family baffled him. I mean, I guess I could see what he meant. They were definitely different and most definitely dysfunctional. And who knows, maybe there was some undiagnosed mental health issues. But they were his family, and now that we were married, they were my family. For all their strangeness, they seemed harmless. But all of that changed with what Scott shared with me that fateful night. Suddenly, I was plunged into a very distressing situation and an impossible predicament. If what Scott was telling me was even partially true, that would be pretty horrible. It would mean his entire childhood was a lie, his family couldn't be trusted, and it would explain so much of his issues, including perhaps even the trigger for his bipolar disorder. And yet, if what Scott was telling me was part of a psychotic break, and he was having delusions or false beliefs about his family, that would be horrible too. It would mean my husband was far sicker than either of us could have ever imagined. Either way, as a wife, I was in trouble, and so was my husband. I would grapple with all of these issues for years to come. But in that moment, that night, that Scott told me what he had told me, I had to say that my gut reaction, my first thought was, I believed him. I believed that what he said happened had indeed happened and that it messed him up big time. I believed that somehow his memory was jarred and perhaps maybe even being off the medication might have played a part in that because all of the walls in his brain that held all of those memories were free to come crashing down. But not long after Scott shared with me what he shared with me, he went further downhill mentally. He became paranoid. At first, he wanted to tell one of his family members, the very one that also had the flashbacks. He said that what happened to him had also happened to this person as well. He wanted nothing to do with his family. He began staying up all night long and wouldn't sleep. He was slowly but surely losing his mind completely. I called our pastor. I cried out for help. The only thing that he could offer me was that I should call that certain family member that Scott had mentioned and see if between the two of us, we could convince him to get back on his medication. So I called this person. They came over. I gave a brief synopsis of what Scott told me, but I didn't go into detail at all. I simply said, he thinks your parents are very bad people. They scoffed at the idea, and I asked them to please not say anything about it. Well, they said that they wouldn't, but of course, eventually they told them. More on that later. Between the two of us, we did manage to convince Scott to get back on the medication. That was literally all we could do. I couldn't have him committed because he was not a threat to himself or others. He didn't want to go to the hospital voluntarily. I called his clinic and they just said to start him back on the regimen. Thankfully, the night the sibling came over, he was agreeable to go back on the meds. And then something strange happened. Almost immediately, an eerie calm settled over Scott. Now this was in the early part of December 2005. From the moment he popped that first pill when his sibling came over, he was calm and quiet for the next couple of months. All the signs of the mania, the distress, the paranoia, it disappeared almost instantly. The sibling left 
and I was left alone with Scott. We barely said a word to each other for the next several weeks. I kept my distance from him in order to give the meds time to work. But what was so weird is that all of the distress that he had when I came back from the trip, it was just gone. He was quiet. He was almost too quiet. He was cordial, polite, but he seemed to have this underlying anger. He never showed it to me, but if he was in the kitchen getting a drink or something, I would hear him slam down the carton or mumble to himself under his breath. I thought, well, maybe he's mad at me for having him go back on the meds and for calling that sibling behind his back. I thought he was mad at me. He assured me that he was not angry with me. Well, life went on. We somehow managed to have a Christmas and made it good for Jasmine. She was still so little, so thankfully she was oblivious to everything going on and she had a good Christmas that year. Thanks in part to that sibling who brought over a tree and gifts. Because Scott wasn't working during this time and we had very little money. 2005 turned into 2006 and Scott was still distant. And he was eerily quiet. He was no longer manic. Didn't seem quite as paranoid. Still didn't want to have anything to do with his parents. I thought to myself, hmm, maybe what he said wasn't true after all. Maybe it was a delusion. The siblings certainly seemed to think so. Maybe it's all the illness. All I could really do was just wait for the meds to get into his system real good. It generally takes about three weeks for them to start working, but the longer they stay in the system, the more it's able to do its work. January 2006 was bleak. Not just weather-wise either. A darkness settled over our home and especially over me. I was left literally shell-shocked. For one thing, what Scott told me that had happened to him, it was traumatizing for me to hear. It was so horrible. What in the world would make him say such things about his own family? The illness? The truth? Either way, it wasn't good. I either had horrible in-laws or a crazy husband. I hated using the C word, but what else was I supposed to say? I knew I wasn't in good shape when one day I was out driving with Jasmine and I began to have thoughts that maybe a semi will come and hit us and just take us both out of here. Then I would be free from all of this. That's when I called my mother. Mamas always have a way of making things better, right? She didn't like the way I sounded on the phone, so both she and my sister came almost immediately from two different states and stayed with us for several days. Their presence helped tremendously. What's so ironic about all of this is that I was a mess, but Scott, he was fine. You would never even know that he had just had a horrible manic episode, that he had said his family did all manner of icky things to him when he was a child and took me on a roller coaster ride of emotions. I was left reeling and he was going on about life as if nothing had happened. He went back to work and that was that. Well, my mother and sister were satisfied that I was okay and everything was stable and then they left. So by now, we're up to February 2006. It's been two months since Scott had the breakdown and the flashbacks. It's been maybe around seven weeks since he got back on the meds and started going back to work. At this point, I hadn't had much contact with his family and especially his parents. Life was starting to get back into our regular routine, which included me playing in the symphony and Scott working. I hadn't needed much childcare during that time because one of us was able to be with Jasmine or my mother and sister were around. But in early February, the time came to where our schedules conflicted and I needed someone to watch Jasmine. We had been very fortunate to never have need of putting Jasmine in daycare. We couldn't afford it for one thing, 
and it really wasn't necessary because most of the time one of us was home, mostly me. But occasionally I needed to have her go somewhere while both Scott and I worked. The majority of the time, whenever I needed childcare, Scott's mother would step in. Sometimes it was a hassle because she lived on the complete other side of town as my symphony activities, so it was a lot of driving. But she was free, and who better to watch a child than her grandmother? I had a pretty decent relationship with Scott's mom. Sure, she had her strange beliefs, but I didn't feel uncomfortable leaving Jasmine with her, which is saying a lot because I wouldn't leave my baby with just anyone. She took good care of her as far as I could tell, and at this point, Whatever Scott had said about his parents seemed to disappear right along with his mania. By this time, word had gotten back to them about what he said, but everybody was just saying, oh, well, it's just the illness. Well, one day I announced to Scott that I would be taking Jasmine to his mom's house while we worked. I needed someone the next day, and my intention was to take Jasmine to her grandmother's and drop her off as usual. But Scott would have none of that. He sat me down and essentially forbade me from bringing his daughter anywhere near either one of his parents without at least one of us present. What? Then he proceeded to tell me why, and I got an earful of part two of what he had told me back in December. What he said next was so disturbing that I thought my husband had completely lost his mind. Now again, I'm not gonna say what it was. You'll have to subscribe to get that part of the story. But suffice it to say, he was dead serious. His daughter was not going to his parents' house. She could go anywhere else. He would even stay home if he had to and not go to work. But she was not going there. Now, what was I going to do? Regardless of what he said and why I thought he said it, and regardless of how disturbing and outlandish it was, I knew I had to honor his wishes. So, I ended up making other arrangements for Jasmine and except for Brief moments, one or two more times maybe, she hasn't seen her grandparents since. I thought Scott was completely insane. I was actually almost scared of him because he was so quiet, calm, and seemingly normal. That to me was worse than if he had been in the middle of an episode. It was eerie. I tried to stay away from him as much as possible for the next couple of weeks, and then something else happened. One night in mid-February, I came home from a rehearsal. Scott was with Jasmine, and when I got home, he was in distress. An item that was dear to him had gotten broken, and he was extremely upset about it. Okay, so that's understandable, but this was different. When I asked him about it and what was going on, his answer to me was, You don't understand. It's not just about this broken item. It represents shattered innocence. My whole childhood was a lie. I tried to tell you, but you didn't listen. Or at least something to that effect. I don't remember specific words, but I do remember this much. A still small voice, which I believe to be the Holy Spirit, whispered into my heart and said very firmly, listen to him. So I did. Tell me about it, Scott. And he did. And boy, did I get an earful. <laughs> will take a deep dive into the things that Scott shared with me and trauma and how that affects mental illness and how that affected our family and all kinds of other things that you can't get in the regular podcast. 
I'll see you next week. Thank you for tuning in to the Simpkins Family Chronicles podcast. You can find out more information about us along with some helpful resources by visiting my website at www.simpkinsfamilychronicles.com. Be sure to subscribe to my email list for updates and follow me on Facebook and Instagram under Simpkins Family Chronicles. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, the adventure continues.